Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the New Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. My internet is functioning today, so I want to let everybody know that I'm not going to sound like a robot on this episode, so you're not going to have to fast forward, or if you gave up on the last one, I apologize. Some of that was pretty bad, but I'm up and running. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in this similar boat. My computer, this is slightly delayed because my computer was acting up today and I'm, uh, I still have to get some things sorted out with it, but it should be okay. Hopefully, um, before we even dive in, uh, cause we're bringing back a, a familiar episode subplot today. Um, I want to ask, are you, what are you excited about for Thanksgiving? I don't know if you know this or saw this, but my sister made me the out the missing outshine flavor mark really yeah so if people listen to our prior mailbag one of the questions that came in was what outshine flavor would you make that they don't currently have so my answer which you sounded enthusiastic about as well was cranberry lime i was like they need to bring this out for the holidays so my sister listens to our podcast she texted me and was like i'll make that for thanksgiving so she actually made it yesterday. I took a picture of it and I have to say that she nailed it. Like it was not easy. I'll have to provide a more thorough review after she tells me everything you have to do. Like making popsicles is not as easy as it sounds. Cause she wasn't just like taking cranberry juice and freezing it in a tray. Like it was legit cranberries and you have to test the cranberries and lots of stuff with real lime juice, but it, it was really good. So my sister who's listening, shout out to you. It made all my hopes and dreams come true. I rate it very highly, right on par with the Outshine Fruit Bars. Well, I uh, I would very much like one, um, but you know I'll do without. If, if since your sister is listening, send some to Cleveland, Ohio, because I will eat one. Um, but no, that's that's very exciting. I'm I'm very I'm I'm happy for you. I'm not happy because I uh, I DM'd you about setting up a potential sponsorship with Taco Bell, and you said, and I quote. Uh, hold on, let me make sure that I have this exactly right. Absolutely not. Um, do you have any rebuttal to that? Well, my brand loyalty to Outshine isn't just going to die off because we haven't achieved the ultimate dream yet. That's number one. And number two, like, no offense to Taco Bell, but I do not like Taco Bell. I don't want to sit here and rep Taco Bell. I don't eat their food. I don't think it's good. Well, I, I don't even want to talk about that. Um, well, Caitlin, what are we here to do today? Today, we're bringing back what I hope is an old favorite. I think this is season three of us doing this, I think. Episode one, season three, episode one today. We're bringing back two, ha, two questions, two ha, which is our reference to Reb Porter's classic call as a PA announcer in Pacer games of, you know, two minutes, two ha, when it got to be under two minutes. And what we do is we each come up with two questions to ask the other person. I have no idea what Mark's going to ask today. He has no idea what I'm going to ask today about the current state of the team. And our hope is to do one of these episodes per month. So it kind of goes over a larger, you know, overarching questions versus just you know recapping the last few although mine kind of deal with the last few games a little bit more but um 
since we're doing mailbags now, I used to crowdsource these, but since we've done some mailbag pods with more questions coming in, I'll probably come up with these myself. I'll do my own work from now on, but um, that's the concept. Okay. Well, yeah, I am. I'm ready to get into it. Do you want to go first? You want me to go first? I actually want you to go first. I think <laughs> on the spot. Uh, well, Caitlin, this is. I mean, this is the biggest question that I have. So I'm excited to get into it. The Pacers have lost once in November, and we can dive into reasons for why. Um, it's kind of like a two-parter. Number one, are the Pacers just kind of good? And this is this is actually almost a crowdsource question, uh, but. Number one, are they are they kind of good? And is that a good thing? Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest question, isn't it? Yeah, like that's... Um, it's it's kind of tough to react when you're watching some of their games because, like, just from a fan standpoint, it's very entertaining to watch. So it's kind of, I mean, with the exception of that first quarter in Houston, that yeah, was, was not entertaining say. to watch. <laughs> Yeah, I watched that. I, morning, I was like, oh. I was envious of Rick Carlisle from getting ejected from that basketball game. But generally speaking, very fun team to watch. Very good vibes all around, it seems. But I look back and like you're saying, like not just November, but their last 10, which Miles Turner's played 10 games and they're eight and two in those games. So like if you look over them individually, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you look like I'll ask you this. When when you're doing draft analysis or when we were doing those stock up, stock down pods, do you look for reasons why a player will work for a team or why it could go wrong or that player wouldn't work for a team? Like what lens are you looking through? Uh, I think both, honestly, which is a cop-out answer. But to me, I probably look more for um, what I think could translate best or what you would hope to see translate best. Because I think, I mean, there's just inherently built in, there's always going to be some room for things not working. Yeah. I mean, I think like just looking at Benedict, I think I tend to look for why, why wouldn't this work later on or what would a team do that would make this not work or what about the Pacers system and that player wouldn't work. So like when, when we did the episode with Benedict, I had trouble coming up with those answers, which is why I made fit the stock up. Cause I'm just like, I'm, I'm watching this guy play and I know he's going to fit seamlessly into, into Rick Carlisle's offense. Like I felt strongly at least about that much. So when I'm looking at these 10 games, I bring this up because that's, that's just more how I view things through of like, okay, how will teams adjust? What will they do later on against Tyrese Halliburton that they aren't doing now? What are, what, what might they do to adjust against Benedict Matherin? What might they do against Miles Turner? And offensively, I think like, obviously they have a lot of guys shooting the ball at a high level. They may not all be shooting at this level at the same time throughout the entirety of the season. But I think I believe in the credibility of the spacing and I believe yeah. in the architecture of the offense and how they're crafting it um, enough to think that even if they don't stay exactly like right now over the last 10 games, I think they're top 10 in both offense and defense. Even if they don't stay exactly where they are offensively, I think that they're not going to have trouble scoring points for the most part, I guess is how I would put it. But defensively, I'm not sure that I think this is a top seven defense. And then when we look over the schedule, like, I don't want to be this person, but you have to when taking things into account. And I'm sure this is something that the front office is thinking about. I mean, they have to they have to be asking themselves, how real is this? And it's like, okay, 
they played the Brooklyn Nets, who, to be honest, looked like they were trying to get their coach fired, borderline, mm-hmm. in those games. They played the Miami Heat on the second night of a back-to-back when Jimmy Butler wasn't available, and I felt that the Heat made like two or three really strange decisions in the last three minutes of that game. They played the Pelicans, and you know Willie Green called them out for their effort in that game and said, you know, basically we didn't start trying till the fourth quarter. They played the Nuggets in what was like a bizarre game for Nikola Jokic, um, and that was of his own doing. Like that's not the Pacers' fault. They played the Raptors on the second night of a back-to-back without Pascal Siakam, Fred VanVleet, or Precious Achua. Went to Charlotte and. Charlotte decided to play drop coverage against Tyrese Halliburton until the last minute and 30 seconds, which was certainly a choice. Um, Played Houston without Kevin Porter Jr. And Houston doing a lot of Houston things. And then last night played Orlando without Paolo Bancaro and without Wendell Carter Jr. So like what, what, what do you take from that? Like, obviously a lot of teams have injuries and are hurt, but for the most part, other than Chris Duarte being out over the last 10 games, the Pacers have been, you know, mostly the picture of health. Dude, that's why I wanted to ask you because like, I'm so, I'm just like unsure how to tackle that one because I'm right there with you. Like I, I it's so important to know how all of these teams look people that were missing. Like even the Orlando game yesterday, Wendell Carter Jr. Didn't play Paolo Bancaro didn't play. Like, I think that very clearly changes how that game went, especially considering how much the team was struggling against size. Um, but on the other hand, like, I, I don't know. Like, that there is also, like, like you're mentioning, that there's there's also the other side being like, well, they, they did win and they did play that way. And I I don't know. Like, it's I think it's a lot more of the first than the, than the second part, but it is hard to parse through for me. Yeah, because like I said, I mean, I, I'm watching and I still think like when I watched Tyrese and Toronto did this a bit um, when they played one, three, one and they had Banton, like they gave Tyrese a lot of different looks at the point of attack. Sometimes it was Chris Boucher. Sometimes it was Banton. Sometimes it was OG on Like they threw a lot of guys out there. They played one, three, one zone. They played two, three zone. They played, you know, they're overloading normal base shell defense. But when they had Banton out there in the one, three, one, they were pretty aggressive and shading Tyrese to his left. And I'm kind of surprised they didn't stick with that a little bit more because, I mean, Tyrese had his lowest scoring game, but he had 15 assists. Mm -hmm. But that was pretty similar to that Kings game last year, which the coverages weren't the same. But, like, his individual output, but also having 15 assists was similar, and the Kings were shading him left the entire game um, with their weak-to-switch and ice-to-switch coverage. So... Like, I'm a little bit surprised they didn't stick to that. And that's like the only thing I can really look at right now that if I was like advising a team and they're like, hey, how should we guard Tyrese Halliburton with the way he's playing? I'd be like, well, drop coverage was death for the Charlotte Hornets. Like, (laughs) that was ridiculous. I don't know why they kept keeping Mason Plumlee that far off of Tyrese and thinking that that was going to be a successful strategy up until, like I said, the last little bit where they tried to put Plumlee up above the level and Tyrese just rejected it. And then he was completely out of the picture because Terry Rozier didn't force him over, but you can't really do that. And now the switching isn't working as well either. Like in the past, you could just put your big out there, but he's, he's found like three different hacks for what he's doing against switches. Plus like, just to be honest, miles Turner has been better um, on the interior against those smaller defenders as well. So like just flat out switching doesn't seem to work. Um, If you trap him, like, then he's not going to be scoring, but the Pacers have done a pretty decent job of moving the ball around out of that. It would depend a little bit on who the screener is 
I think some like some of those guys are a little bit better at making plays than others um, on the move. But I would tell them you need to weak him like as much as possible. I don't think you're going to stop him, but I haven't seen any teams doing what like it's funny because like the cheapest, easiest scouting report is probably to go like if a, if a guy's played at more than one team watch him play against his old teammate or his own team. Cause they're going to know him better than anybody. It's like, it's like when Sabonis was on the roster. And if you watch Steven Adams or Thad guard Sabonis, it was like, okay, yeah, you need to sit on his right hip so that he can't turn and finish with his left. And they'd be really aggressive and push him off his spot and take that away. And, and he usually had some of his lowest efficiency games against his old teammates. And it was similar with, with Tyrese. So like, and that front, I haven't really seen anybody do that, but and I saw OG use some tactics against Benedict that were effective, but like, I don't think you're going to completely shut those two guys down. Like not from what we've seen so far, like even if, even if teams make those types of adjustments. Um, and then the thing with miles is like the spacing around him, the credibility of the spacing that's out on the floor is just making his life so easy. Like, I don't want to diminish what his numbers are right now, but like, it is astonishing to go back and look at some of the games that Sabonis was playing last year when they would post him against the switch. Like I had two screenshots of this the other day on Twitter where like they're playing the Brooklyn Nets during that COVID replacement time. And he has a switch against Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant and James Harden are flooded clear across to the opposite side of the lane. And it's like Kiefer, Lance, Miles, and Justin. And they did not care about those guys at all. Like, it's just three people mugging Sabonis because of what the shooting situation was last year. Like, you go back and watch those possessions where Miles was pretty big in the fourth quarter against the Pelicans, and the Pelicans were switching everything, and there's nobody with even a foot in the paint. Like, and give him credit for, you know, establishing early position against those switches, but, like, it's just so easy. And, like, when you have Tyrese setting him up, like, we both noted what the Tyrese effect was on two-point percentages for the bigs last year, like – there was times in that Orlando game last night where like having him just in a double drag, both defenders commit to buddy coming off that screen. And literally all miles has to do is roll. He doesn't even necessarily have to be good at doing it. Cause it's just, there's that much space. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think what's so fun in watching this offense is like, like what you mentioned in terms of players might not uh, have the same efficiency throughout the year but i i'm right there with you and saying like i feel like this offense and what the spacing has been and um you know just by and large being like a top 10 offense the rest of the year i'm pretty comfortable in seeing that as where it's at um like that's just kind of where we're at now like it, the the actual just spacing and, and motion and fluidity of it has been pretty tremendous to watch and it feels i mean not that just feels like it is replicable we've seen it routinely be replicable um so yes i i agree um, and that definitely plays a part like miles is, and I guess, I don't know if that's one of our things, like, like you've kept harping on with the free throws. Um, part of that's been how aggressive he's been, but also like, again, it's the overall spacing has just been pretty tremendous. So. And, and the pace element as well. Yeah. Like we, I mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about the half court offense, but I mean, they're second in transition frequency, racking up, you know, fast break points as well. So like, I don't. I see no reason like if I don't have access to second spectrum, but I imagine if I did that Tyrese is probably top three, at least in hit ahead passes. He's always looking for the advanced passes. We know he wants to push off of makes we've got buddy. And I think buddy right now is number two in early three point attempts. We got Benedict who's, 
fairly high up there. I think the Pacers overall are like second in early three point attempts. They were before they played Orlando. I don't, I didn't check those numbers again this morning, but um, they got those guys filling. And then also miles and Jalen are running the floor hard. Like there's, yeah. there's more to pace than just running hard. But in, in the case of the Pacers, a lot of it is that like they, they know how to space the floor around it, but you got miles and Jalen running really hard. They're doing early work. You got buddy and, and Benedict who are both putting up the ball really quickly. And you got Tyrese who's, you know, getting the inbound pass and immediately heading downhill the other way. Like that's a lot to handle. And, I like you can still see Rick Carlisle calling plays. I'm not going to say that he doesn't, but Tyrese is calling more now than he was at the end of last season. Um, He has more control of that. You can see him using a lot of hand signals. So it's not as much, you know, looking over the bench to get directions as what was going on at the back end of last season or at the beginning of last season when we could routinely hear them telling guys to, you know, hold and doing more pace control. Like that's pretty much out the window. So, um, they can maintain some semblance of the defensive rebounding, which after we talked about that on the last pod, they've obviously, you know, given up some offensive rebounds here in these last couple of games. That makes it that much easier for them to run when they are taking care of the glass. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think offensively I'm there defensively. I'm going to bring up something that's sloshing around in my brain over the last mm-hmm. like four or five games. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough question for the front office because the other part of your question, is this a good thing? Do you think it's a good thing? Uh, that's because I really can't decide exactly. That's where I am, too. I think it's somewhere in between. Like, on one hand, um, like my my general assumption is that this is going to even out and they're not going to like the the coming up schedule is going to be uh quite a bit more difficult, in my opinion. Um, like they're going to play Minnesota, who granted Minnesota has been going through it, but I think that team is just a lot more talented and they will. They need wins. I would imagine they're going to come out and try and win this game. Um, they're going to get – that That would just be my assumption. This different version of the Nets with how they've been playing, I don't know, Kyrie's back now, so that's a whole other thing. But, I mean, they play the Clippers. They play uh, – okay, maybe this isn't that – I mean, the schedule does – it will get it will get harder, point being. But, well, they're like, going on a very long road trip. Yeah, thank you for saving me there. Um yeah. Uh, so I think on one hand, I expect it to balance out just because that's how things typically work. Um, but I like us and I think it's good. Like they're to me, they're doing things that are good for rebuilding. Like this is even though they're nine and six, it's still a rebuilding team. Like, obviously, I think this is a thing that we try to convey a lot in the offseason. It's not that they have to lose, but like we just want to see them bu- building in a different way, obviously. Um, but I do think like, if we're talking about this team at the end of December being like 500, I I mean, how does, how much does that change things for you? In part, it kind of already is changing them for me now because the front office has way more information than we do. Like, I won't pretend that we have insider knowledge here. And I won't pretend to know what Miles Turner's thinking is, but Miles Turner knows what his thinking is. And I would hope that, you know, the front office is keeping that line of communication open. Mm-hmm. If he's not going to sign an extension and he's in the middle of the most complete stretch of his career Make the trade. and he's helping you win games right now and you're going to end up trading him later or he's going to walk, I think that you need to, to act. Yeah. I'll put it that way. And, and some to not as urgent obviously because buddy isn't in a contract year but you know the longer you wait like i said right now he's playing at the apex of that he's ever played 
he's healthy and he's helping you amass wins. So if you're telling me like, if they know right now, Hey, we've talked about this, you know, he wants to test free agency. He wants to bet on himself. We have that knowledge. I don't think it benefits you to wait to closer to February. I mean, maybe some more teams over time will get more desperate because things aren't going right for them. Maybe that increases your bids, but in the same time you're winning games. Um, and I, he's helping you win games for sure. I mean, we saw what he did at the end of that Houston game, protecting mm-hmm. the rim. We saw what he did. You know, they didn't win the game against Denver, but we saw his defense late against Nikola Jokic, which I thought was quite good yeah. over the last like three or four minutes of that game. That does not happen if it's one of the other bigs out there. So um, it kind of is already to an extent for me. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I, I think that, on, well, I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't be upset. I mean, I wouldn't be upset either way. Cause like, I just, I want things to work out for, for all parties involved. But like, like you mentioned, either the an extension has to happen or they trade him because I agree. Like if he's not going to be part of the future, like I, I think you have to act now and be like, okay, well let's make a trade happen. Cause you're playing the best basketball of your career. And frankly, we are playing too well. If, if you're not going to be here next year uh, or not, even if you not even just he's not going to be there next year, but like playing themselves out of lottery content well, out of higher end lottery contention in this draft would be a mistake um, for the most part, in my opinion. And yeah, I, I do think like, like you mentioned, like his play overall has been one of the larger factors, especially, and that's not to say that he's like an MVP candidate, but it's just, there's a big difference between, you know, who, he is and who's filling in behind him um i'm not meaning to seem like oh well sorry go ahead no and i was gonna say and that's part of it too because like i don't think isaiah jackson had a great game last night it seemed like he had like slippery hands a lot of the time especially Mm -hmm. i'm I'm sure that contributed to why in part they went to terry taylor i mean the magic were playing smaller and they got terry some minutes there um in that quarter he had the big offensive rebound and one but i i think isaiah jackson played like eight minutes yeah. So like that's not necessarily helping things and that's not the case every game. And I, you know, I applaud Rick Carlisle for the accountability aspect of all of this, but you know, that is something to consider. And again, if if the situation is different than this and they think that they have a chance of re-signing him, then okay. And both of us are readily admitting right now, we don't know what the answer to that question is. I'm not any of those people involved. It's just that, you know, if if they don't think that that's something that's going to happen, I would certainly be active on the phone is, is the way I'm putting it. Yeah. And I, I concur with that entirely. Um, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. I didn't know if you had anything to add to your questions. Was that just your full question? Number one? No, that, I mean, well, I guess the la- the last thing that I would add is that I'm, I'm just enjoying watching the team. Like I, uh-huh. I don't want it to come off. Like I just want them to lose games, but sure. It is like it, when you're talking about, this team uh becoming something more i do think like one of the things that i just want to keep pointing out and not that i necessarily think they're gonna do this because i do think that the team is bought into a more long-term view but it is worth noting that a team that was not expected to play this well was part of the reason why they locked themselves into a core that was a little bit obviously it's more complicated than that you know what i mean but like the what the oladipo era became wasn't really supposed to be that at first and until they kind of gelled and started winning games so i i do just like i just am very curious to see how they handle this because again like i think that it's going to go differently than that but 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, because there was that reporting around the time, you know, when they were talking about Russell Westbrook, where it sounded like Herb Simon wanted, didn't want them to move Buddy and Miles. Like they, he wanted to start the season with both of them on the roster. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying he was a roadblock to that. It sounded like the franchise was open to moving them if both picks would have been put on the table. But, you know, you have to imagine if, if fans are, you know, excited about watching this team, which it very much seems like they are. And, you know, are you at what point can you pull the plug? Because it does make it it does make it hard to evaluate, because even at this time last year, it was the reverse situation. Right. Yeah. Like the Pacers were losing all these very close games. And more of the conversation was, is this just bad luck? Like because they were outperforming in terms of, you know, point differential and where their net rating was like they looked like a much better team than what their record was showing. Now, the question for the front office has to be you know, are they as good of a team as their record is showing? Cause now they are winning some of these close games. And like I said, it does make it tough when you're not able to fully evaluate team, the opponent team on the floor, because every night it seems like the opponent is missing, you know, either their best player or two or three really key players that, you know, I do give the Pacers credit because they are making the adjustments that they need to make, but would it look different in the light if those guys were out there? So if you don't mind, that actually flows into what my first question is going to be that I want to yeah, get some feedback it. on. So, you know, I lightly touched and hinted at the defense. Like I said, they're a top 10 defense over the last 10 games. They are allowing the lowest field goal percentage at the rim, which is clearly a big contributing factor to miles, but also like my Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith are blocking shots. Sometimes the secondary rim protectors as well. Um, they're still allowing a fairly decent sum of above the break threes, 11th in frequency there, and, and opponents are hitting those at a high rate. Um, still fouling, but not fouling as egregiously as they were to start the season. And then, like I said, they have seen a little bit of a drop off and the opponent offensive rebounding rate from where they were when we last talked about this podcast. But they're currently on a four game winning streak. And when I look over these last four games, one thing in particular stands out to me um, the slow starts in three of them in mm-hmm. part, but also that they mixed in selective traps heavily in the second half of all three of these games. So just to provide listeners with a review of the events that have transpired when they played the Raptors a week ago, the Raptors in the first half shot two of 14 from three. And the key stat there is that they attempted only 14 threes or 12 threes. I'm sorry. And they got to the line 21 times and the Pacers committed 15 fouls. So after halftime, you could tell pretty readily that the Pacers were like, hey, look, we got to protect these fouls. We're getting killed on bully drives. We're giving up too way too much around the rim. We have to double all that action. We have to start sending them extra bodies and we have to force them to beat us from three. So in the second half, they do that. And the Raptors go three of 23 from three. So you got them to almost double their three-point volume. Meanwhile, they only attempted nine free throws. And the Pacers only committed eight fouls. Smart strategy, good adjustment. Like you probably could have done that from the tip. I get in part why they didn't. Maybe they wanted to wear out Scotty Barnes, wear out OG, wear out Thad, and and test the waters and see are they going to make those shots? Can we do it without fouling? And they didn't. So then they made what adjustment they needed to make. That's game number one. Then they go to Charlotte. And again, Charlotte's playing drop coverage against Tyrese, which doesn't really make sense. But if we fast forward to the fourth quarter, 
LaMelo and Matherin are exchanging baskets. That was really exciting to watch. Like it was basically just those two against each other to an extent to start the fourth with about nine and a half minutes to go. The Pacers start half court trapping LaMelo before he even gets across. They're forcing the ball out of his hands. And then if he did get it back in the half court and he got a screen, they trapped him. So he only scored two more points after that from the nine and a half minute mark on. And the Pacers outscored the Hornets 27 to 18. So they're shredding drop coverage at the other end, and they're forcing everyone else on the Hornets to beat them other than LaMelo Ball. And the Hornets shot one of seven from three. So, like, you're scrambling around, and the Hornets aren't making shots out of that anyways. So that's game number two. And meanwhile, the Hornets didn't start trapping Tyrese until there was a minute and a half to go. And now, granted, LaMelo also did hurt his ankle with a couple minutes, so that wasn't, you know, all of his playing time. Mm -hmm. So then they go to Houston, and Eric Gordon has 19 points at halftime. He's getting to the rim at will. He's pretty much doing whatever he wants to do. They have some touch-and-go issues with Jalen Green, but Andrew Nemhard was guarding him. Buddy Heald was guarding Eric Gordon, and that's how Buddy Heald got benched for a time and seemed very disgruntled about that. So then after halftime, Eric Gordon has five points, and Lloyd Pierce makes the adjustment of, hey, you know, we can't just keep letting that guy do whatever he wants. Let's see if the rest of this team can beat us. So anytime Jalen Green or Eric Gordon have the ball, we're going to switch that screen and then we're going to blitz it, and we're going to force the ball other places. And, you know, maybe Jabari Smith catches it, and he's not going to do anything off the dribble. So, you know, oh well. And for the game, the the Rockets shot 6-28 of from three. So that gamble paid off again. And then last night against Orlando, Franz Wagner had 29 points. But selectively, throughout the entire game, they were either hedging out above the level or, like, on the very last shot that he airballed and didn't even strike iron on, they went switch to blitz again which they had left him in isolation against Miles on the two prior threes. But to make this very long story short, as people can see, big time changes in the second half where they were very aggressive and different types of trapping coverages that slowed down their opponent where they were basically like, hey, guess what? We don't think you can beat us in a shootout. We have better shooters. We're going to force the ball out around a three. They didn't make threes and key players were missing. So what do you think of that strategy? Do you find that replicable against different opponents? I guess is my question. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, and that's one I hadn't really thought about. Uh, I think, well, especially against like Orlando, like when you're like, like looking at these last couple opponents, that, that is a really great point in terms of looking at what that does against each team. Um, I mean, playing Orlando again, I think that's feasible to see. Uh Minnesota shooting has been like suspect. I'm interested to see what that looks like. Uh, man, I'm trying to like, I mean, I, I guess Utah is an interesting bellwether and in, at, at the beginning of, of December, but um, I mean, I, I don't think that that's fully replicable. No, it, but uh, see, like, I don't know. I think it's just somewhere in between. I know it's really hedgy, but that's funny unintentionally, but yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And this is why I said this is why this is difficult to evaluate, because in part, I'm looking at it and I give credit to the coaching staff. I give credit to what Lloyd Pierce did in Houston after Rick Carlisle got ejected. Um, I think that they're making smart adjustments. That makes sense in every one of those four games, why they did it and their players came out and executed it. But then I can look back at that Raptors game and think to myself, OK, if that's not Scotty Barnes, if it's not 
OG, which OG had a really good game in that in that game. Like I'm not trying to take anything away from him. But if the ball is in Pascal Siakam's hands in those situations in the fourth quarter, he's basically slender man. There is no tight space that is too tight for him to wiggle into playing it basically an MVP type level. And his playmaking has been so good that I think he finds more of the cutters and loosens that up a lot more if he's out there, not to mention what Fred Van Fleet does as a shooter away from the ball to give them somebody else's a release valve. I'm not sure if you can do that if the two of them are playing. Charlotte, this probably still works, <laughs> just to be frank. Like, I, I don't know if Steve Clifford would be like, hey, let me keep playing Mason Plumley and keep dropping him against Tyrese and Miles. Maybe if he had to do that over again, he would just play small and switch. I don't know. Um, but the rest of the personnel, if if they do what they did against LaMelo and half court trap him, and you hope that the Hornets only shoot one of seven from three, maybe they shoot the ball a little bit better in some of those situations, though I did think they scrambled it pretty well. Houston, can you do that if Kevin Porter Jr. plays? Like, I, I don't know. Like, if you're forcing the ball out of Eric Gordon's hands, you go switch to blitz, and it's not Jabari Smith catching it, and it's Kevin Porter catching in a four-on-three situation, I'd like to think he'd put a little bit more pressure on the defense than what was going on in some of those situations. Um, he can be like, you know, kind of a water dancer when he's out there in half court getting into the basket. Um, Houston's offense, you know, hasn't been very good this year, either schematically or with, you know, their personnel all the time, but I think that that looks a little bit different too. And then last night, certainly, you know, on some of the times when they were hedging hard against Franz Wagner, if Paolo Bancaro is catching it as the release valve, how do you feel about him creating in those situations versus the people who are out there? How do you oh, feel about very, Wendell Carter Jr. Yeah. catching it and going into a DHO and making, you know, some sort of connectivity? Like, again, I just feel like, eh, I'm not sure you could do that again. Yeah. And, you know, maybe we'll see how these next few games go. But in, in each case, they needed to do what they did. Like they were not stopping Eric Gordon in one-on-one -on -one situations. They were not stopping those, the various, every Raptor who had a size advantage over a guard in the post, they were having to scrape and claw. That's why they had 15 fouls in the first half and why the Raptors attempted 21 free throw attempts. What they did at halftime is what they had to do in order to win that game. Like I, you know, they had to get the ball out of LaMelo Ball's hands. They needed to do that. Like, I mean, we saw what Franz Wagner did to Miles on an island hitting the two step back threes before they trapped him on the last one. Like they needed to do what they did. I just, if there's other people out there, it's kind of like the Raptors played the bulls in a mini series right before they played the Pacers. And they did the same thing. Nick nurse had them, you know, double from the strong side against DeMar DeRozan for like that entire game. Zach Levine didn't play. They win. They try the same strategy the next game when Zach Levine is available and they get shredded. Because, oh, well, now we have Zach Levine attacking in those four-on-three situations. So I do think some of the aspects of the defense have been better. Like, I think overall the scrambling looks a lot more composed than it did even when they were in Philadelphia because there were some times where they tried to double, you know, and bead um, on the wing or they tried to bring extra bodies to James Harden really late and they just were not good at uh, processing where they needed to scramble out of those. Hmm. So I do think that it's been a little bit better. I just they have been a beneficiary of in a couple of these, like two of these last four of some really poor shooting, which, you know, the Raptors aren't a good shooting team. So you can probably bank on that, but um, I don't know. That's just where I'm at. Like I can just look at some of these games and be like, I'm not sure those are wins. If there are other personnel are out there, I guess is the way I would put it. Yeah, no, I think that's all very fair. 
Um, and I guess that in some ways that makes it uh, interesting in terms of what that looks like going forward. Like maybe it's not as uh, feasible to think of them winning as many games, which is in kind of way, whether that's good or bad. I think that we probably led towards it being good. Like obviously they're being competitive and that's what matters, but yeah. Um, does that clear up the end of your question? Yes. So what is your second question? Uh, let's see, this is interesting. Cause we kind of encapsulated. I was going to ask about miles, but I think we're there now. I mean, we, we already really hit on that. No, you, I mean, there's more to cover with him. If you have something else to add, or if you want to go somewhere else, that's fine too. Well, I'm, see, that's, there, it's hard because I feel like there's so many things I want to like. Uh, well, I do just want to say uh, this is really great podcasting on my part. I'll say that. Um, how much of this for Miles do you feel is real? Which sounds that sounds harsh, but like, I mean, how much do you think of this is part of the system, and how much do you think this is like real tangible growth? I think it's a little bit of both. Um, and I definitely think some of it's environmental. Like I just, like we talked about it uh, when I was in my prior long soliloquy about what the spacing looks like around him when he yeah. is seeing some of these switches. Um, I did have a stat people or like three stats this morning where I, I was saw, interested yeah. to know, because it felt like, it feels like to me every time he takes a hook shot that it's just automatically going to go in. So I was like, I wonder what he shot on hook shots this year compared to last year. So for listeners who didn't see the tweet, um, last year he shot in 41 games when he was available. He was 3 of 10 on hook shots. This year through his first 10 games, he's uh, 7 of 9. So, yeah, pretty good. Um, Almost already attempt as many as he did last year. So this kind of brings about your question because I do think that he's been better at using his left shoulder. Um, and sometimes you'll see him fake a little bit over the right and then go back up hard over the left. Um, he's, he's lowering that shoulder, not in a way like he's not getting an offensive foul, but he's using it to his benefit to get space, putting in early work and then finishing easily. That is an upgrade for him. Um, do I think that he's suddenly overnight gone from being a 30% hook shot shooter to a 77% hook shot shooter? Probably not. (laughs) I don't probably think that. Um, and because he is predominantly, that's where he wants to go. I would imagine if he was overnight, a 77% jump shot shooter, one of two things would happen. Teams would stop switching it because they're like, Hey, we can't keep putting our guards on that guy. Like he's ethering us with hook shots or they're going to start being like, sit on his hip. Like you can't keep letting him turn that way. Um, at least with like stronger guards, like, you know, a, a James Harden type, who's pretty decent at defending the post. Um, and even last night, like Jalen Suggs did push him off his spot some. So there is still some of that um, where I don't necessarily think his center of gravity in all these situations is better. Like even as the role man, it's like what I said before, like he doesn't even right now really have to be quote unquote good at rolling. He just has to actually do it. So that brings up the next stat, which is right now on the screens that he's using, he's rolled on 60% of his possessions after setting a screen. So the last time he was a starting five in 1819 before Sabonis came into the starting lineup, he did that on 29% of his screens. And I know that Nate McMillan had a quote back in the day that made the internet very angry where he was basically like, they were talking about him popping to two versus three. And Nate was like, well, he can really be a magnet to that. And people interpreted that as Nate McMillan saying that he could be a magnet 
to the three point range as if it was like Nate encouraging more mid rangers. And maybe that is what he meant, but I interpreted it as he's a magnet to popping as in like, that's automatically what he wants to do. So like headed into this season, you and I talked about it. I wrote about it a couple of times. Like I think a lot of times in the pick and roll opposites are better. So if, you know, you have a guy like Tyrese who doesn't necessarily always pressure the rim, he has got better at that in certain circumstances this year. He more dribbles off a pick and surveys because he's more of this pass first guy in, in a lot of situations. A role man is going to be better, which is why the eight and thing made as much sense as it did. And if you're somebody who really puts pressure on the rim as a pick and roll ball handler, then a pick and pop threat would be better for you because that's going to open up lanes. So I felt like they were going to be very diametric or that one of them was going to have to adjust to the other. So, so far, I think it's good because Miles has clearly adjusted to Tyrese. He's rolling more than he ever has in his career. And he is doing it, I feel, with more force. It's just that he's not really having to. Like, he has drawn some fouls against his own guy in certain circumstances, but he's not seeing heavy tags because, like I said, if you're playing lineups with Matherin and Buddy and Nemhard and Tyrese out there, most of the time, nobody's putting a foot in the paint. So there's been like once or twice where I've seen him, like I think once against New Orleans, he had a really nice move where he used the spin around the tag and finished. And then there was one game in Denver where Aaron Gordon slid over and tried to use verticality and he finished through that bump anyways. But like, I, I don't necessarily think that his center of gravity has changed a lot. I just think it's not really being tested. And like, I don't know that it will be, given what the environment is. But like, if I was another team and I was like thinking, okay, Miles Turner's playing really well for the Indiana Pacers. I would weigh some of that before I traded for him. Cause I'd be like, Hey, are we going to have this same set of, of circumstances? Not to mention just what the Tyrese effect is like the one pass he had against Charlotte was beautiful. Like, yes, the Hornets were in drop, but he's, he's passing people open at such a high clip that, yeah. you know, it makes a lot easier, but like, where are you at with it? Yeah. Uh, I think what, like, I know this is a very random question, but how do you feel about how little he's actually making contact with screens? I know like part of that is what they're asking out of the offense, but like, how do you feel about that in general? Cause I, I haven't really been sure how to weigh that in my head. Like, and cause I think like, like you're mentioning too, part of it has felt like to get the most out of him as, as a roller, it, it feels like they're just empowering him to, to pop. Well, obviously pop less, but it's more just like they're kind of, uh, I don't know. To me, it feels like there's not really a lot of deliberation between whether or not it's going to be a roller or a pop. Like it feels very much like, okay, you're rolling because like, I mean, what he's only shooting like three threes per game right now, which is the lowest in his career in quite some time. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I just like, I don't, I don't know where are you at with that? Cause I've been trying to, think about that in my head right so i think it all depends on the coverage like yeah i felt like in the pelicans game in particular like valanchunas is sagging way off of him he's not a guy who's going to come out of the paint mm -hmm. against most players so i felt miles is pretty active in looking for the three there i mean i think to play with tyrese you need to roll he needs somebody to put pressure along the rim that's what makes you know the decision that, you know, tertiary defenders have to make about it. You know, is he going to throw the lob? Is he going to throw the skip pass? Is he going to, is he going to go to his floater? That that's what puts the indecision there. If you don't have that guy rolling to the paint, it, it's not as, as 
confusing for those defenders to have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. So that's likely a big part of it. And I felt like this was going to be a thing because Tyrese had a quote like the first day of practice, or maybe it was media day where he was basically like, you know, Miles and I are communicating more. Like, I think he could be rolling more or, you know, doing more as a roller. And he's like, I'm pretty sure he probably thinks there's things that I could be doing too. But, you know, we have an open line of communication. And that was pretty telling for me that they thought that, because even if we look back, like not to go on a side tangent, but I mean, you and I talked about it when they played the Hornets the first time. And we were like, you know, what did you think of the Halliburton Miles pick and roll? Um, this was in preseason. And I was like, I was pretty underwhelmed because like Miles was aborting his role. Like it's not a pop. It's like he would roll like two steps and be in the paint. Mm-hmm. And Tyrese wasn't getting deep off of the ball screen because he was having to stop to pass it to Miles in those situations. And that's gotten better. Like that was definitely better in the in the regular season game against Charlotte than what it was in the preseason, um, where he's he's fully rolling to the rim. But I also think, and this is kind of a piece of it in these last two games in particular is that Tyrese is obviously playing really well. He has tons of double doubles and I feel like he could still be more aggressive looking for his own shot. Like in yeah. Houston, uh, that was another thing I was thinking about. Yeah. Like in Houston, when the Pacers only had like 10 first quarter points, he was playing off ball a lot in those actions. Like I'm not really sure why buddy and TJ McConnell were running so much, but even when he was on ball, he was kind of back to his, his thing where he was dribbling past the pull-up window and then feeding it to the screener and not even in a way that was necessarily beneficial. Like the one he fed to Goga and it's like, you were past the point where that needed to happen. You needed to take the shot. And now Goga's kind of in a precarious position. And obviously that's not happening all the time. We know that Tyrese is leading the league in assists, but it's in those situations where I'm like, you know, his usage rate is up over 20% and that's good. But like, I think it could be even higher. Like, I think he did lead the team in shots against Houston, but he probably could have taken four or five more. Um, and th- that's just because that's the right read. It's not because I'm like setting a benchmark, like he needs to make take this many shots. It's just that with the way he was being covered, I thought um, he could have been a little more active even. But um, yeah, I mean, I think to answer the question about how much of this with Miles should we expect to to carry on? Like, yeah, that is the question because... I think the rolling is going to continue because I think that's what needs to happen with Tyrese. The free throw attempt rate is the one that's a little bit eyebrow raising because it's double his career number. Like, and, and some of that is because he's playing around the basket more for the reasons we just said, he's rolling a lot more. They're having him do stuff against switches, but like, you know, he has a free throw attempt rate over 60%. Um, There's only like two or three centers in the NBA who are attempting more free throws than him. And there are certain circumstances where I'm like, okay, if he puts the ball on the floor and he's taking a Euro step to his left, going across the lane, like, why are you fouling him? I I don't, or like if in certain circumstances where he has a switch, I think I would probably still test him a little bit instead of like almost using a take foul. Um, but I do think that he's gotten better. Like we said on the last pod, he's, he's been headier with pump fakes. Um, I thought what he did against Jokic in semi-transition to get his fifth foul was very smart play to make. Um, I don't know that I think that he's going to have a 61% free throw attempt rate the whole year though. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, the one thing I wanted to add though, I do feel, and I, I'm curious if you agree, but I feel like he has really, um, like the biggest leap for me, or not maybe leap strong way, and maybe again, maybe part of it is the offense, but I do feel like he's been much better at not thinking. Like it feels like he's been yeah. a lot better. Like I'm just going to go. Like he just gets into his moves and go and, and, and goes. And 
I think to me, like that has been a big part of why he's getting free throws because there's, there's just no contemplation. He's just doing it. And I think like, I mean, part of that's, that's stuff we wanted to see for a while. Um, and I think that's been a, that, that to me has been like at least the biggest thing that I've noticed is being like a real improvement. Yeah. I mean, I think in, for me in the past, when he'd be in the post, it was that he was making his move before he read the defense, like before he felt the defense, like he was already predetermined. Mm-hmm. This is what move I'm going to make. And I'm going to do it really quick. And I'm going to be rushed before I've actually felt what that defender's doing. So I might be a little bit different that I do think he's feeling where the coverage is a little bit more. Or not than... even, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean just the post. I mean, in general, like if he's oh, attacking yeah. off the catch. Yeah, for sure. Like he's just kind of running his body into guys at times. Yeah. yeah. Like instead of like any room for, for, for thinking, it feels like he's just going. And I think that's been really nice to see. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you did bring up the screen quality. And that was a question that somebody asked me. I don't know who you were, but somebody on Twitter asked me that question very nicely. And it like got lost in my mentions and I went back and looked for it. So I don't know if the person deleted the tweet because I didn't respond right away, but they asked exactly the thing that you just brought up. And we're like, you know, I feel like I'm watching a lot of the times and like nobody's making contact on any of the screens. He's like, that used to be an issue that you would bring up with Goga. Are you similarly concerned about it now? So I will try to answer that in part here. The coverage is different. So like last year, the screen quality really mattered because if you're playing with Malcolm Brogdon and Karis LeVert, more likely than not, in a lot of games, you might see Karis like they're in Oklahoma City Thunder and Lou Dort's going to duck under every screen. So having somebody that can make a quick reverse screen, you know, flip the angle and re-screen and get him going the other way really matters for Karis to have the ability to get downhill. Um, or if it's Malcolm Brogdon and, you know, maybe he's being iced and having somebody be able to change the angle, that's also going to matter. Or if they're playing drop coverage and they're just going to dare Malcolm to make, you know, pull up threes, then the screen quality matters because in order to combat that and peel off the defender, you need to set a good quality screen. So that is in part why I would harp at Goga about it, because like the one game that they played at the end of the Bjorken season, they played the Spurs. Karis and Brogdon, like nobody finished well at the rim. And when you looked at the screen quality, like Goga wasn't hitting and holding contact on like any of them. Now with Tyrese, like very few teams are going to play true drop coverage against Tyrese Halliburton. And if you do, I have a lot of questions for you. So mostly teams are either automatically switching or they're going to play, you know, maybe somewhat higher at the level or, you know, whatever. So it's a lot of times it's better for Isaiah Jackson or Miles Turner to be, you know, going up there approaching quickly to get separation that way and then slipping it. So that's why you're seeing them slip a lot of different screens is because of how teams are defending the screening actions or they're trapping Tyrese completely, or maybe they're doing like what the Pacers did to Eric Gordon and they're switching the big and then they're blitzing after that. So you don't want to, you don't want to hold that pick. You want to get out of it quickly or otherwise it makes it harder for Tyrese to make those types of passes. So I'm guessing that's probably why you're seeing more of that. Um, if, if the defender is going over, then, you know, you probably want them to be a little bit better with it. And there are times where, you know, Tyrese before the start of the season, when I wrote my Isaiah Jackson article, Isaiah had said that Tyrese wanted him to be able to hold some of the screens. And there were times like that, where you'd want him to use like a Gortat screen in the past, like where the defender screens, the ball handler, and then screens their own man as they're rolling to create like a pathway for Tyrese to get to the rim where Isaiah doesn't really do that. And sometimes he's just too extra. Like I swear he gets, you know, 
a screen, uh, an offensive foul almost every day, every game for sticking out his elbow. Um, that's a thing as well. But I think, I don't think it's necessarily that the bigs, I mean, the, I'll be honest, none of them are as good as screeners as DeMontis Sabonis. They're not even close. So they're, yeah, you're going to be seeing a drop off there. But part of what they're doing and why they're running up there and they're just like touching base and running away has a lot to do with the way that Tyrese Halliburton's being covered. Okay. No, I appreciate that. I, and just another quick thing off that. Is Ajax screening a little bit better? I feel like it is. Not like, um, obviously, I mean, low baseline. But have you felt at least a little bit better about it? I feel that he's still getting way too many offensive fouls on screens. I don't well, know what I, that I, number is right now, but it, it's got to be high. Last year, he was like third in the league at picking up offensive fouls that weren't charges. And I bet if I look it up that it's it's pretty similar. Um, let me see. That might take me a little bit, but, um, yeah. Cause the other thing too, is that how often, like when we're just talking about screen quality while I'm tooling around here on PBP stats and seeing if I can find this is the article that I wrote that they're using guards as screeners a lot. Um, and that is my in part B because of what some of the screen quality is from the bigs, but it also allows them to relocate, like put the big in the strong side corner and that makes the rim protector not there. So they run like this one play that's one of my favorites that I feel like they get good points out every time where like if Tyrese has the ball, they run a ghost screen. So like Jalen will go screen from one wing to the other. And then they have the big set a down screen for the guard to then go screen for the ball on what's called Ram action. So it makes that defender late. And then the guard goes and sets a touch screen for Tyrese on ball. So they're using a lot of touch screens with the guards where effectively like the illusion I used in the article was like, you know, a prankster ding dong ditching. It looks like they're running up to a doorbell and then automatically running away because they're slipping out of it. So that was pretty effective for them against Denver. They got people with that like five times and then they got it in Houston a couple times too, where it was fun to watch Andrew Nemhard like basically be a role man and making plays out of the center of the floor a couple times. Um, I liked that. So um, non-charge offensive fouls. Let's see. Non-charge offense. Oh, and I was looking at fouls drawn. I was going to say, there's no way he's not committed any moving screens. I see him do this like every game. Yeah. Good hope. (laughs) Where's the freaking category for this? Okay. Fouls committed. Yeah, he has seven of those, so he leads the team. Um, let's see how that compares to other people per 100. That's probably high, I would imagine. Oh, no, Goga's actually higher than him on the per 100s. Incredible. Um, yeah, so, yeah, he, he leads the team in that category right now, but um, I don't know. I feel like he, he constantly is sticking his hip and his elbow out in times when they do need him to make contact, but... Sorry for how long it took us to get to all that. Um, Did you have anything else that you wanted to bring up specifically um, with Miles? No, I don't think so. I think we hit on everything. Okay. Um, Then my last question is, this is going to be kind of a, I I had two very nerdy questions and I apologize for that. Um, Because I had selective trapping and now I have this one. So this, this was brought to mind because of what the Orlando Magic did last night. Um, the Pacers right now are the fourth highest team in terms of how often teams are running zone against them. So 
like just right off rip, why do you think teams are running so much zone against the Indiana Pacers, given what we know of them in terms of how many threes they're getting up and how many three-point shooting threats they have on the floor in a lot of circumstances? That was a good question. Uh, I hadn't really thought about that, to be completely honest. Yeah, I'll just I'll just say why I brought it up is because last night the magic, like you could see Jamal Mosley motioning for X, which was for them to get into yeah. their three two zone. Sometimes they were full court pressing and then dropping back into the three two zone, and they did that in the second half. And they only did it nine possessions, but the Pacers did not score points on seven of them. There was one where Aaron Neesmith made a three, and I think TJ McConnell made a pull up two. The other seven possessions they went scoreless. And they never scored against it in the fourth quarter. And then with six minutes and 57 seconds to play, they never went back to it. Like, they never went back to it after any more makes back into the zone. And I found that very puzzling because I'm like, I think I would have stuck in that because, like, the Pacers' offense wasn't necessarily bad against it. They have this wrinkle that they call chest, and they were, like, having Tyrese flash from the opposite corner across the free throw lane to kind of overload it. And then if he didn't get anything, then they'd flash the opposite guy. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's not necessarily bad offense, but they weren't producing against it per se. And then if we look back to the game they played against the Miami Heat, they went scoreless on 11 of 15 zone possessions in the fourth quarter. And with three minutes and, like, 57 seconds to go, I think Eric Spolster had called a timeout. And I don't know if he anticipated that, like, hey, Rick Carlisle is going to call a zone buster. So to throw them off rhythm with that play, we're going to come out and man. Like, I don't know what he was thinking, but for the rest of that game, they didn't go zone, even though the Pacers weren't scoring against it. So, like, I don't know. Like, what have you thought of their offense against the zone? And, like, do you have, just in general, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I don't really have a ton of zone thoughts. I don't know. Uh, seriously, I, had, I hadn't thought about that. Um it does seem to give them fits, like you mentioned, or not fits is maybe too far, but like they go through some lulls for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like part of it is that most of their, like a lot of their downhill ability comes out of their shooting gravity and like just having to chase. So I feel like maybe to an extent, if a team is going to zone, they feel better about like not having to, um, about how they're, uh, able to get out the shooters because I feel like I mean at least for me I feel like that maybe maybe I'm completely wrong on how Tyrese gets into the paint against zone. I this is giving me this is like I mean the main thing they head. do is the play that we've talked about a lot of times like their their number one thing they're going to do if an opponent goes into zone is they're going to screen the inside so they're going to use their two bottom yeah. defenders to X they're going to screen the inside of the top of the zone and basically create a hole for the person to drive into. And then they use the other big to move toward whichever corners filled with a player so that they could potentially get, you know, a lob or an open corner three there. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is like Orlando was in the three, two zone, which you can still screen the inside of it, but obviously the hole is going to be, you know, smaller to drive into like that did work a couple times. I think that's how TJ got in. And then just one time they just screened the outside of it to draw the wing person. And then they got a corner three that Aaron missed. But I think in general, like when I watched, I watched back the heat possessions today. Cause I, I wanted to see that because I got a lot of feedback and I don't, I don't know what your thoughts on this were, but like there was like five people that night when I made a comment about like, I wonder why Eric Spolster went out of that zone. And people were like, well, Tyrese is looking off Benedict Matherin. He just kept looking for Buddy and he wasn't giving the ball to Benedict. 
Like in general, have you felt like Tyrese is looking off Benedict Matherin? No, never. I have not had this impression either. I know that, you know, Tyrese and Buddy did their interview with Kevin O'Connor at the ringer. And Tyrese had said that in the one game when Benedict was hot, that he had wished he had got him more involved, but I have not seen any. And I, I rewatched it like looking for that because people had said it to me. And I'm like, I didn't see any situations where he was intentionally looking off Benedict. They did run a few zone buster type plays that involved Buddy. And obviously they were flashing Andrew Nemhard into the middle and that would have been like my only complaint. Like Nemhard's a good passer, but they were kind of just having him loop up from the paint and then just being there without a lot of cutting around versus Orlando. They were kind of flashing two different people, but like there was one play where they overloaded the entire right side of the zone and Benedict or miles was supposed to set a hostage screen or a corner pin in for Benedict to come off of it. And miles never said it. So then they ended up having to give it to Nemhard in the middle of the paint. And that's whenever he made that, like had to try to create a shot and barely got a shot off. And then like nobody cut to the opposite side after they overloaded it. So like, you can see the bones of things that they're trying to do. Like, I think that the offense is probably mostly fine. They just don't always execute it. And like, so I was asking myself, like, why would teams be doing this so much in addition to just like looking at those results and being like, oh, hey, Miami did this and it slowed them down. Like, why would you do it against a team with a lot of shooting? And I'm guessing it's mainly because it's just harder to run pick and roll. And like Tyrese, like 48% of what he does is, is ball screens. So if you can take that away and force like, you know, zone concepts are much more spacing and ball movement, whereas man-to-man concepts are much more screening and cutting. If you can eliminate some of that, because the Pacers even like to cut around the pick and roll in and around it a lot, like you're eliminating that aspect from their offense. And I also saw a coach one time do a coaching clinic because he was, I watched this video a couple years ago now, because he was talking about floppy zones and like switching mid possession between man and zone, like what the Pacers did last year and how they trigger that. And he had said like, you know, people ask me all the time, like, why would you run zone against a team that shoots 40% from three? And he said, my answer to that would be they shoot 40% from three against man. What do they shoot against zone? And how are they getting those types of shots? Because if I can eliminate their ability to get those shots off of motion, or if they're getting a lot of them out of the pick and roll and we can make them have to get them as, you know, standstill shooters or, you know, and we can rotate out, he's like, then maybe they aren't a 40% shooting team from three. So right now, like the Pacers are missing shots against it with the exception of they did handle it pretty well against Toronto. When Toronto went one, three, one, they fed the ball to Aaron Neesmith in the corner a couple times and he made it. And then Nick Nurse tried to go 2-3 in the fourth quarter, and they just looked like Scotty Barnes missed a rotation, and then a couple other things happened, and they came out of it pretty quickly. Like, it was only, like, three possessions, and Nick Nurse was like, okay, that's enough of that. We're not going to test that. So um, they handled it okay in that game, and they they handled it some against Denver, but Denver played it quite a bit after halftime, too, um, when they ended up giving up some of the leads. So I do think that the zone is something to watch. I think it's interesting that opponents are being willing to do it as much as they are against a team that shoots the ball this well. And um going to have to keep watching what type of sets they're running. But I did want to bring that up because like, just from an opponent standpoint, again, when I'm trying to evaluate how real some of these wins are, I really don't know why Jamal Mosley didn't keep playing that because like the Pacers weren't 
weren't executing very well. So um, just wanted to to get that in there. So I apologize to everyone for the nerdy questions tonight on the podcast. No, I I think that was awesome. That was something that I'd never really thought about before that honestly makes me kind of want to rethink how I look at things sometimes. So I appreciate you asking that. Um, is there anything else you want to dive into or, or, or dip our toes into before we get out of here? No, I mean, I think that that closes up everything good, pretty well for this month. We'll probably try to do um, another mailbag pod once per month. I think that those have gone over pretty well, but we'll keep doing these um, every month of the season as well. And then to everybody, it is Thanksgiving. If you celebrate Thanksgiving, I hope you have a good day. If, if Thanksgiving isn't something that you and your family celebrate, then I hope you have a very nice Thursday. I concur. Well, Caitlin, this was a blast. Everyone listening, thank you for listening. And as Caitlin just mentioned, have a good rest of your day.